You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. We are continuing our series in John 14 to 16, looking at the farewell discourse, what Jesus said to his disciples about what it means to follow him when they drop their notes, um, that he gave uh, just before he died. And we set out this series months ago. We decided uh, as a pastoral team that we'd be preaching through this, and we divvied up the weeks, and we decided on you know, May 29th we'd preach on the idea of sorrow, having no idea that this week, maybe of all the weeks recently, sorrow would be so front of mind, at least for me and maybe for a lot of you as well. As Pastor Chris already led us in prayer for this morning, this has kind of been a a week of sorrow for us as a country, thinking about not only the shooting in Uvalde, but also the shootings before that, last Sunday down in Laguna Woods, and before that in the grocery store in Buffalo, and what it means about us as a people and a country that this is the sort of thing that happens uh, here, not just in uh, far-off places, but in grocery stores and in schools and in churches. And I don't know how this week has struck you, but for me, there's been a deep sadness that has accompanied this entire uh, discussion and lament, uh, even as there's been anger and fear and all the other emotions as well. Now, I, I don't want to say that's the only feeling. You, maybe you've had other feelings this week. I hope you've had a lot of joy this week and contentment in other parts of your life. But I imagine for you, there's been some sorrow around this as well. What do you, what do, you do with that sorrow as a Christian? Where where do you go with that? What happens with that sorrow? Well, there's a lot of answers, uh, and Chris led us in some of those earlier with lament, but I hope that as we turn to John 16 this morning, you'll see uh, how Jesus wants us to understand the sorrow of his death and what that means for our life uh, going forward, and how really the the sorrow over his death is really the source of our joy in the future. And then uh, in In addition to that, what we do with that sorrow really changes how we relate to him and towards one another. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, So if you have your Bible, let's open to John 16, verse 16. The first part of the passage, the the shorter part, is about his cryptic statement to the disciples. Um, And then the longer part is his discussion of the relationship of sorrow and joy. So let's jump into it in John 16, 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. I say this is a cryptic statement because it's not immediately apparent what Jesus is talking about. And as so often happens in John's gospel, there's confusion. If you read uh, John 1, you know, all the way through, you'll see this theme of confusion come up a lot. In fact, it seems like everyone in John's gospel is confused except for Jesus. Here it's the disciples in verse 17. The disciples say to one another, what is this he said to us? A little while and you won't see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. This confusion uh, sort of relates to the overall theme of people not understanding Jesus or not understanding his purpose uh, in his coming that John talks about a lot in his gospel. But it also makes sense uh, because they don't understand the resurrection. Let's be honest. If you were there and you were talking to Jesus at that point, you'd be confused too. If your spouse said, you'll see me for a little bit and then you won't see me and then you'll see me again, you'd assume they were going to the store, not dying and resurrecting again, right? This is a, a unique experience in human history. And Jesus is describing something that's yet to ever have happened before. But this is also um, a little confusing because Jesus uses different language here. As English speakers, we have the benefit of so many wonderful translations of the Greek New Testament. Uh, And we have the benefit of of so many wonderful insights into what the original authors 
intended for us to know, but sometimes things fall through the cracks a little bit. And that's the case in the Greek in this verse. Um, when Jesus says, a little while and you will see me, he uses one Greek verb for see there that has the idea of um, sort of visual sight. And then later in the verse, he says, and a little while longer and you will see me. And he uses a different Greek word there for sight that has the idea of perception or insight. So as one translator put it, uh, or one commentator put it, you're used to looking at me, but soon you'll see me in a whole different way. Or you have sight now, but soon you'll have vision of me. Might be another way to, to paraphrase that or translate that. And this vision of Christ is going to make all the difference for how you and I approach sorrow in our life. So Jesus is using this cryptic statement to sort of whet their appetite about what it means to see Jesus now and then to have insight of him in a different way. And this is really around this topic of sorrow. How does the, our sight of Jesus after his resurrection change our vision, change our viewpoint or our perception on what really matters in this life? And that's what he describes here in verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus explains that the, the joy he gives has its roots in sorrow. This is really important. Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned into joy. That's very different than how we talk about sorrow in this life, usually. Usually we talk about sorrow and joy as discrete categories that don't have overlap with each other. By discrete, I mean that they're, they're, they're totally different, right? That sorrow is one bucket and joy is a different bucket. And sometimes we tell people, just focus on the joy bucket and kind of ignore the sorrow bucket. Usually we say that to people when we don't want to deal with their sadness anymore. And so we say, don't you have a lot to be grateful for, right? The sun will come out tomorrow. And well, not great advice, it does have some resonance. There is some sense and it's true. It's not totally wrong to focus on what's good and ignore what's bad. It's just very different than what Jesus is talking about here. In this passage, Jesus is saying something different. He's saying, think of sorrow as the soil out of which your joy is going to come. Now, you can imagine if Jesus had said to Peter, Peter, don't be sad. You know, yeah, the cross is going to be a hard day, but we'll always have that time we walked on water. You know, there, there, there were good days, right? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the source of your joy is going to come out of your sorrow. The three days after the cross will be filled with weeping and lament. Lament, by the way, that the world will not share, because often grief and sorrow is isolating. You're going to be kind of alone in that. But it is out of that sorrow that joy will grow. This is really important to understand what Jesus is talking about, because it is out of the sorrow of his death that our joy comes. Now, I, I said that sometimes we treat joy and sorrow as sort of different buckets, different categories, and we don't think that one can come out of the other. But as you think about the benefits to you as a Christian for Jesus' death on the cross, you know that joy can come out of sorrow. Think about all the ways that Jesus' death on the cross benefits you. All the joy of your salvation that comes out of the cross. Not, uh, not out of some other bucket, but out of the soil of the cross itself. I wrote down seven benefits of the cross. These might be helpful for you to write down as well. Um, there's more, but these are the, the seven I came up with. Um, the first one's from Colossians 2.14, right? That the cross cancels the record of our debt of sin. 
What joy there is in knowing that we're no longer indebted because of our sin. That only happens, though, because of the sorrow of the cross. Well, the second one's from Colossians 1.20. The cross makes peace out of all creation. What joy it is to know that we're not at odds with one another. And specifically around the issues of ethnicity. Ephesians 2.16 says that the cross breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, killing the hatred between Jew and Gentile. Right, that, that is one of the joys in Christ that comes as a result of the cross. Mark 10.45 says that the cross is Jesus giving his life as a ransom for you and for me. Our life is a ransom for many around the world. What joy there is in that aspect of Christ's suffering. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the cross is the power of God to salvation. Hebrews 10.12 says that it is the cross that is a single offering that has perfected you for all time. Man, can you imagine if we really believed that, if we really took that in, that you and I are made perfect by one sacrifice for all time. What joy there would be in that. And that joy comes out of the soil of the sorrow of Christ. And lastly, at the cross, Christ has defeated Satan. Hebrews 2.14. Now, we could keep going. We could keep thinking about the ways that, that the cross benefits us and the joy that comes out of that. But, but I hope you hear that all of that is rooted in sorrow. Right? It, it's sorrow out of which that joy comes. What joy there is in the cross, not in spite of sorrow, but through sorrow. Now, I, I, I'm talking about the cross. I'm talking about the sorrow of Christ. But I've got to be honest, probably most of you, that's not the sorrow that we came into this room with. I'm yet to meet someone who comes into church and says, I'm just feeling really sad this week. And I say, why? And they say, well, I've just been reflecting on the fact that Christ died. You know, and I'm not trying to make fun of anyone. I'm I'm just saying for most of us, you know, we kind of think of the cross and the resurrection together. It's not usually a source of sadness. And it's also not usually front of mind. The things that drive our emotional sadness are the things that we saw in the news, our experiences of our families, our experiences of our jobs, our experiences of uh, our own mortality. These are the things that drive sadness emotionally in our lives. When Jesus says your sorrow will be turned into joy, does he mean those sadnesses will be turned into joy? Or is he just talking about the cross? And if he's just talking about the cross, that's good, but but we also want to know about our own sadnesses, don't we? Our own sorrows, our own griefs. Will good come out of those? And as people, we tend to be impatient about that. Maybe especially as Americans, we want to see the good that comes out of it. And, and when it's something minor, you know, our vacation got canceled, but in the end that worked out for good because we could spend more time with our friends, we can kind of live with that. But when something like, Uvalde happens or Buffalo happens, we take a big step back when anyone says, well, maybe some good will come out of this. We're like, I don't, I don't know about that. Like, What good could possibly validate that amount of suffering? So well, what do we do with those sorts of sorrows? Is, is, is there joy on the other side of them? Now, that's, that's not what this passage is talking about this week, but I do want to take a, a brief detour and look at some other passages in the New Testament that help us wrestle with that question. You know, this passage in John 16 is about Jesus' death on the cross, but there are other passages, even other passages that John himself wrote in Revelation, that take up this question about what about our other sorrows in this life? Maybe the the most famous one is in Revelation 7.17, where it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
I love that verse. It's, it's an amazing promise that all of us look forward to that the day that we will see Christ face to face where he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Now, there's bad news in that verse, though, implied, though, isn't there? It implies that there's tears in our eyes. You can't, you can't have them wiped away without grief. That, par- that paragraph that passage is in talks about the one he's wiping the tears away for are those who have endured the great tribulation or the great trial or the great persecution. The ones who have gone through tremendous hurts and sorrows are the ones that are comforted. As Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a tremendously comforting verse. But it also is in the context of talking about that, that we look at these things on a grand scale on, on, in regard to Christ's coming, not on the temporary timetable that we're often looking for. The hope that we're looking to find that a, a silver lining by the end of the week or the end of the month. As Christians, we do have deep faith that, that uh, one day that Christ will reconcile all things to himself and that we will see the good that comes out of it but we rarely see that on this side of eternity. As Romans 8, 18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we look forward to that glory, but it is yet to be revealed on this side of heaven. Um, well, to explain this uh, connection between sorrow and joy, Jesus uses a metaphor, an illustration in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I love this illustration because Jesus is using this universal experience of humanity that every every people group, every nation in all time has gone through. This contrast between the most intense pain and the most intense longing of joy of a child wrapped up in the same action saying that without one, you cannot have the other. Uh, it's a vivid metaphor because it's in the midst of this momentary intense pain that lasting joy comes. I'm sorry, I know I'm reading off my notes, but I'm a man talking about childbirth. I'm a little anxious, right? I, just, I, <laughs> I know what I don't know. And, and before, for my sisters here, before you say, what does a man know about childbirth? Okay, first of all, it's Jesus we're talking about, so be reverent. Um, and secondly, he's talking about his own crucifixion. So before you say nothing compares to childbirth, okay, but crucifixion has to come close, right? Like if we're going to compare something that seems like a fair doppelganger. And, and third, let's notice the point of the metaphor, right? The, the point of the metaphor is not to dismiss the pain of childbirth. In fact, it, it presumes the pain of childbirth. Otherwise, the metaphor doesn't work. It says that even in the most vividly horrible pain, like childbirth or crucifixion, lasting joy can come out of it. Obviously, for for the crucifixion, the lasting joy are some of the things we talked about, the the benefits to you and I for our salvation. For childbirth, it's the enduring gift of a child. Sometimes we get hung up on this phrase, she no longer remembers her anguish. And I've had a lot of women in my life um, tell me, well, I remember. (laughs) I remember the anguish. She just doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, okay, he doesn't mean intellectually. Like it's, he's not saying you don't intellectually remember. He's saying that we no longer dwell on the anguish because there's something enduring and lasting that comes with having the child. In the same way, his 
sorrow at the cross is temporary and our sorrow at losing him is temporary compared to the enduring gift of his resurrection and of our salvation. Um, all right, I've tried to be careful, but let's just throw caution in the wind here. Um, who would rather give birth to a child and who would rather have a kidney stone? Like, which one is worse? Which pain is worse, right? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just... I'm going to throw this out here. I have met a number of people who have voluntarily had multiple children, who have voluntarily gone through the pains of childbirth. I've never met anyone who has said, you know what? I'd love to have two or three little kidney stones. I'd love to just, I just, I want them on like they are on the Christmas card. And uh, I'm going to just do that. I'm just going to keep hitting the caffeine until I can have another kidney stone and another one. And I've been trying for a while for a kidney stone, but you know, A little punchy, it's the third service. Uh, <laughs> what's my point of that, right? My, my point is that kidney stones are pain with no hope, no enduring joy. When it's over, there may be relief, but there's no greater good that comes out of it. Whereas Jesus says, our pain and sorrows in this life are like the pain of childbirth, right? They are intense sometimes, debilitating sometimes, but they're also temporary. And there is joy that comes out of the other side of it. And his death on the cross is similar to that. It is temporary, but because of, as, Roman, as Hebrews 10 says, for the joy set before him, he endures the cross because there is good on the other side of it. Think about this enduring gift of the baby when he talks about verse 22. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. Jesus says that the joy that he gives, the joy that comes as a result of his death on the cross, is permanent for us. It is not something that can be revoked or taken away. It's something that's enduring. The joy that we receive as a result of knowing Christ is something that lasts forever. For his original disciples, the sorrow that was being put on them against their will was powerlessness. They were at the hands and the mercy of the Roman Empire. It didn't seem like anything they had was lasting And Jesus says, but the joy that I give you is lasting and no one can remove it from you. No one can take it away. This applies to us as well today. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have access similarly to irrevocable joy. Joy that comes out of the very heart of Jesus himself. You see that in uh, John 17 in what's called the high priestly prayer when Jesus talks to the Father for our benefit, prays the Father for our benefit. And one of the things he says is that He speaks that we may have his joy fulfilled in ourselves. It's in John 17, 13 that he says this. He says that the joy that we have as a result of salvation comes out of his own very heart. And because we have him in us, we have Christ's joy in us. This is why joy is considered in in Galatians 5 to be a fruit of the spirit of Christ. that, That if you know Christ, that you are filled with his joy. Does that mean you're always happy? No. Does that mean you have to pretend to always be happy? No. But it means at the baseline of who you are, there is a reason to rejoice. At the baseline of who you are, there's not a depth of despair or sorrow all the way down, but a base rock of joy that comes from knowing what Christ has done for your salvation. And the hope that we have that this can never be taken away and that it is complete. This is what he says in the last couple of verses in verses 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 
Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the third time in these couple chapters that Jesus has talked about asking in his name or praying in his name. This time he, he frames it a little bit differently and he uses two different words for ask in the Greek language. It's sort of this, the second time and, and the, the brackets that uh, John has used this convention where he uses two different uh, similar words to describe the same thing in different ways. He says, in that day, talking about his resurrection, you won't have any questions for me. Everything will make sense. You'll understand what I'm talking about. But until then, you'll be able to ask, different Greek word, for all that you need in this life for godliness. What does this have to do with joy? He's saying you'll have the fullness of joy. There's nothing that will be held back from what you ultimately need in this life. Now, we're tempted in immaturity to think, well, some things I need to be happy include this bill being paid off, this car, that girl right over there, and on and on and on the list. Um, but those are all immature things, right? Ultimately, what we need for our joy and godliness is all provided in the death of Christ, that we would be secure, that we would be known, that we would be loved, and that our eternity would be secure. And Christ, Jesus says, ask all those things in my name and your joy will be full. You'll have everything you need in life and godliness. Well, uh, we're going to wrap up there, but I, I do want to just say one thing before we close. Like, I hope if you came in here with some feelings of sadness or frustration or anger over what's happened this week, either in your personal life or in the world as a whole, um, that you've been able to bring those things to Christ. The goal isn't to get rid of the sorrow, right? The goal is not to get rid of the sadness, though sometimes we want that to be the goal. The goal is to bring that sadness to God and to know that his joy is the thing that lasts for eternity. His thing is the thing that is full. It's, it's not at odds with the sorrow of this life, but we look at the sorrow of the cross and we see that joy can come out of that. And we ask that he would turn our sorrows into the joy that he wants for us. Let's close us in prayer. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here um, who are carrying the sorrows of this week especially hard and especially heavily. Uh, maybe things that we know about and things that we don't know about. Uh, God, I pray that you would be with them in their sorrow and you would point them to the joy that they have in you. God, I pray for my friends who are here who, who don't know anything about this idea of joy of salvation. Um, maybe, maybe they believe in God, maybe they don't. Maybe they uh, know a little bit about the Bible, maybe they don't. But, but the idea of, of a fullness of joy just sounds weird to them. God, I pray that they would find joy in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and God, I pray for all of us that we would be a people uh, who wouldn't hide from sorrow, who wouldn't be scared of sorrow, but in sorrow would find a reason to rejoice in our salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.